0: Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about Samuel Stewart, the English professor turned tattooist and sex researcher. So as you can imagine from the topic of this episode, we have some content warnings before we get started. This episode will contain paratypical homophobia and also just the general repressive sexual attitudes of like the early to mid 20th century. It will also contain explicit sexual content. So no children should probably be listening to this episode, okay? This includes discussion of sex between people with large age gaps sex between a teacher and his student, and also discussion of BDSM, specifically dubiously consented to BDSM, sometimes that becomes extremely violent. There will also be mentions of drug addiction, alcoholism, sex work, violence and gang violence, internalised homophobia, and the AIDS epidemic. So if any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, (laughs) fair! Feel free to turn this episode off and listen to one of our other episodes, which will have content warnings, but definitively less content warnings than this, probably. Before we get started properly, I'll also do a quick mention of our sources. My main source for this was Justin Springs' biography, Secret Historian, The Life and Times of Samuel Stewart, Professor, Tattoo Artist and Sexual Renegade. <laughs> sexual Renegade? Yes. <laughs> I primarily just reference this to say that like, it was good, but once we're not going to spend much of this episode dragging the biographer, it was a pretty well-done biography, and I felt comfortable just sort of relying on it for pretty much everything that I'm about to say here, which is just, like, at yeah. first. Like, I thought it was good, yeah. Justin Spring's work was made easier by the fact that Sam himself thoroughly documented his own life. And so he had a very rich array of sources to draw from. This is like a historian's dream. It really is, yeah. In particular, his sex life is what he was dedicated to documenting. So Sam kept uh, what he called his stud file. <laughs> All right, Sam. Which was a 746-card card catalog. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was imagining, like, a journal, but a card catalog. Uh, yeah, so that documented his sex life. He had a, a card for sort of, like, each new man he had sex with. Were they in, like alphabetical order in a file or something? They're, they're in a file. I'm not sure exactly how they're ordered, if it's chronological or alphabetical or what, but they are heavily cross-referenced and annotated. They're very well-kept. Samuel <laughs> oh so.
1: Stewart meets Keynes, and he's just like, you were like a little baby. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs>
0: he did also keep a journal. He wrote, like, thousands of pages of journals and letters and things like that. So, wow. Yep. Yeah. So the way we're going to do this episode is we're going to kind of talk about his life fairly briefly and then come back to sort of his two main vocations in life which are tattooing and sex because it was just easier that way so first let's talk about his life okay one more thing that we should probably mention before we get started is that i am quite sick and we're just doing this anyway so sorry if i sound awful Hopefully I'm instead having that thing that people sometimes have with colds and like sitcoms or whatever, where they just sound like way sexier than normal, Uh, but probably I just sound kind of hoarse. So like, sorry, we're going to try and also like edit out all the coughing, but if we fail again, I'm sorry. So Samuel Stewart was born on the 23rd of July, 1909 in Woodsfield, Ohio. We're not playing American Geography. I don't know where Ohio is. I don't care. <laughs> the middle, corn.
1: corn is a direction, right? Yeah, in America, it's yes. North, south, east corn.
0: <laughs> <laughs> his mother died when he was a child and his father was addicted to drugs and alcohol, so unable to care for him or his sister. He grew up in a boarding house that was run by his aunts, who were devout Methodists. And the boarding house was literally opposite the Methodist church, so it loomed large in his life, both literally and figuratively. (laughs) Sam understood his aunts to be, like, basically good people who loved him, but they were not particularly emotionally nurturing, and they expected very high standards of him in terms of his schoolwork and stuff like that because they wanted him to go on to a better life than they'd been able to provide. Mm. Uh, So while they're not bad to him or anything like that, it's a pretty sad and lonely childhood to some degree sam felt obliged to sort of play into the golden boy role that they had established that they respected from him whilst also rebelling on the side so he was an exceptional student but he would also do things like steal from the cash register at his uncle's store get drunk and on one occasion throw a pumpkin through the window of the high school principal's house (laughs) a pumpkin a pumpkin i don't know (laughs) why not maybe it was halloween did it have a face on it i don't know no further details about the pumpkin i'm afraid okay after high school he went on to university doing a b.a with honors and then a master's, and then a phd
1: oh no not same same. same. he finished in
0: 1934 Uh, his phd topic was provocatives of the oxford movement and its nexus with english literary romanticism sounds gay yeah i'm sure it was pretty gay He had a mentor while he was studying in the form of his Professor Clarence Andrews, through whom he met a number of literary figures of the day. So this included William Butler Yeats, and most importantly, to Sam's life, Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas. Oh, cool. So we're not going to talk a lot about that. There's not a lot of sort of big events that happen in their friendship that necessarily make for interesting storytelling, but they would have an ongoing, largely letter-based friendship for several decades. And after Gertrude Stein died, he remained friends with Alice until her death, considerably later. And they would play a sort of motherly role to him. They called him Sammy, um, and they would sort of, like, scold and pamper and praise him by turns for years. So that's nice. lesbian moms. Yeah. After graduating, Sam started to teach, which was the profession that he would hold for the next 20 years or so. He taught in a variety of institutions, often either in small towns or in religious institutions or both.
1: When you say teach, do you mean, like university or
0: school or college or like just whatever i don't understand the difference between university and college that's fair um yeah like tertiary education he's not a high school teacher yeah so these were often either in small towns or in religious institutions or both as i said and this contributed to a pattern of him feeling quite isolated at his job and generally just not enjoying where he's teaching his first full time job was teaching English at Carroll College, which is a small Catholic college in Helena, Montana, and he said about it trying to teach cowboys and the sons of cowboys about semicolons is not a rewarding pastime. Fair. He then went on to the State College of Washington and he found it to be very dull and conservative and gossipy, so again, socially isolated for like a different In 1936 he published his first novel Angels on the Bough It received national attention, it was very well acclaimed Mm. It depicted a circle of Bohemians in Columbus, Ohio During the Great Depression Uh, It was quite comedic, it was very sexually Candid One of the characters is a Sexually promiscuous woman who is portrayed Very sympathetically Mm. And her inclusion meant that he was fired from his job at the time
1: Okay Okay. I mean I guess he didn't love his job anyway
0: Yeah, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, I hope his novel is economically successful. It's not really. He finds a job at Loyola University, which is a Jesuit school in Chicago. He was reluctant to teach there because he thought, given that it was a religious university He would probably also get fired once they found out about his book. So he sent them a copy of his book and they were like, whatever. Okay. (laughs) So that was fine. So he went to teach there and the position was enormously stressful. It demanded a very extraordinary amount of work from him. He's teaching under this academic who is like an incredible... Perfectionist. Mm -hmm. Um, So he really comes into his own as a scholar there but at the same time obviously this is going to have a lot of strain on him and his mental health. So Sam had already begun to have problems with alcohol and whilst working at Loyola his alcoholism worsened. So it got to the point where he was regularly getting blackout drunk at night and was drinking shots in between classes. Oh no. Was having to mark the day off on the calendar so when he woke up he knew if he needed to go to class or not to teach. And so in 1947 he sought help from Alcoholics Anonymous and successfully quit drinking. Oh, wow. Um, Although, you know, obviously it's a difficult process and he had various relapses and so forth but he did successfully quit drinking. He also decided to leave his job and to get a new one at DePaul University which he describes as being being like a school mostly attended by working class students and mm-hmm. just being like much less academically rigorous so much less stressful on him yeah. in terms okay. of the workload yeah yeah so i think that's probably good for him but although he's quite a popular teacher he still doesn't enjoy the work he described the students as being barely literate and the work is repetitive and painfully boring and so he found himself after a time taking amphetamines to get through teaching the classes okay by this time as well he had already started to tattoo on the side this is at a time when tattooing is very highly stigmatized so this is something that he could be fired over there's also the fact that he is gay and although we haven't talked about his sex life yet he is carrying on a active sex life okay. during this time. So he's, you know, quite at risk of losing his job. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, whether he knew was he was gay, gay at or... this point. Yeah. We'll talk more about when and how he's gay later. Okay. Okay. But, like, in short, he's all gay all the time, basically. Okay. So, as we mentioned, Sam had published a book when he'd been a younger man. But despite that sort of early promise of this fairly well-acclaimed novel, he never followed up on that and had written little in sort of the intervening couple decades by this point. Largely this was because he was interested in writing books that were gay. Yeah. And it was pretty fruitless to try to write anything about that because it wouldn't be published at the time. Yeah. So he could have, and he did consider self-publishing and distributing his work privately, but in the 1950s, which is what we're up to by now, this is dangerous and difficult and illegal. Um, oh, Okay. Not just to self-publish, but to self-publish, like, gay yeah. fiction, to be yeah. clear. <laughs> he also could have gone through an erotic publisher, like, potentially in Europe, and toned down the sex that he wanted to write about to just sort of a suggestion. But this likely would have required that he pathologise and denounce homosexuality, and again, he wasn't willing to do that. Mm-hmm. He yeah. just wanted to write mm-hmm. about, like, fairly well-adjusted men having very explicit sex with each other, and it's the 50s, so... That's so unfortunate. In 1958, Sam- and met and became friends with Rudolf Burkhardt, who was the editor of the Swiss magazine De Kreis, which was a news and culture magazine for gay men. Its stories tended to portray the relationships as largely sort of romantic and emotional. It was very cautious about displaying okay. any kind of sex. Mm-hmm. yeah, And it tended towards quite an assimilationist approach to gay rights. Sam started to publish articles and stories in it in 1958, and he went on to become its strongest American voice over the next nine years. Despite this, he found it very restrictive. By this time, he has been delving into BDSM more and more, and the magazine rejects his more overtly bdsm EE stories. Mm, yeah. So he decided that he wanted to write fiction that reflected his experience, not what this magazine required. And so in 1963, Burkhart recommended he send his stories to a Danish bookseller that he knew who just started a more risque publication. I see. So he submitted some stories to this guy under the name Phil Andros and was very popular. <laughs> um, the name he chooses like essentially means, like, loves men. <laughs> no. So he begins to develop a character under the same name, so also called Phil Andros, and he's this, like, educated and sophisticated sex worker who's, like, travelling around America and having various sexual hijinks. Okay. And it's written from the first point of view, so it's kind of like a you know found footage filmed with the girl porn <laughs> I guess you know what I mean like it's yeah, pretending yeah. to Just have this really veneer dive. of like yeah this really happened yeah so by 1964 he'd stopped teaching and he was sick of life in Chicago so he moved to San Francisco he was drawn in part by its burgeoning gay scene and he worked there as a tattoo artist and then once he stopped doing that as a writer he published a short story collection called Stud in 1969. <laughs> the S in Stud is a dollar sign.
1: Oh, well. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, like, things have not changed at all. Absolutely not. Tacky. So like, tacky. Pretty tacky. That's 100% a self-published collection of gay erotica that you can find right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He then went on to write five full Andros books. So by this time it was obviously a bit easier to publish Gay Erotica. Yeah. Given yeah. that he's doing it. But it's still a pretty thankless business. So he's paid a flat once off rate for them, which isn't a particularly big one. He doesn't get any royalties and he has no rights regarding like if they're edited.
1: Oh, you know, okay. All,
0: yeah. Which sucks. It's interesting because like Sam and other gay pulp writers at the time, or at least some of them, often cared a lot more about their work than the publishers did. Because, like, Sam saw himself as being part of the sexual vanguard Mm -hmm. and writing fiction that he had needed to exist when he was a young man. But the publishers just viewed it as, like, porn they could use to make a quick buck. So there's tension in his professional career there. He also wrote a couple of other books. He wrote a memoir about his friendship with Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas called Dear Sammy. Oh, okay. Uh, And it's a sort of, like, annotated collection of his letters. That sounds good. To them, Yeah to and from them, I should say. Spring, the biographer, noted that this was a pretty decent contribution to Stein's scholarship, particularly because it was not afraid to be frank about the fact that Gertrude Stein was a lesbian, Mm -hmm. um, which at the time was not really... The dumb thing. The dumb thing. Yeah. He also published a book about tattooing called Bad Boys and Tough Tattoos, A Social History of the Tattoo with Gangs, Sailors, and Street Corner Punks, nineteen fifty to nineteen sixty five. That also
1: sounds like a very interesting book. Yeah, I started... Like when did he publish it?
0: Nineteen
1: ninety. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, it's 1990 already? Yeah.
0: I said I would just skim through his life real quick for you. (laughs) Yeah, he did not like that title, by the way, the Bad Boys and Tough Tattoos part. He had that foisted (laughs) upon him by his publisher. Uh And so we will return to the end of his life at the end of this episode, but I thought now that we kind of had a bit of a sketch about what he broadly did with his time on Earth, we would go back to the beginning and talk about his sex life. Okay. Okay. And this, frankly, is going to be the bulk of the episode. (laughs) I remember you saying when you researched the episode, there was some, like,
1: casual mention of a filthy gay three-way in it or something, and you were like, it just wasn't remarkable
0: enough to include. There were so many individual sexual encounters in this that I'm like, I mean, I think in any other episode I would have included them, but I- this is too many. He has, like, dozens of orgies at his house that I maybe referred to once. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's going to be like this. It's like of orgies. that. Dozens of orgies. Yeah, he called them daisy chains. Oh. It's quite cute. <laughs> it's quite cute. Yeah. So, as we've made clear, Sam is best known to us basically because of his sex life. So, literally going right back to his youth. Now, as we said, he grew up in a small religious town, which isn't the greatest environment. To be gay. sex. Well, just to be a sexual being at all at this time in history. Yeah, true. So Sam recalls that he knew that sex was wrong before he knew what sex actually was. That's pretty messed up. Yeah, that's pretty messed up. Sounds like
1: Christianity. Yeah. It's messed up, but I feel like that's not a... Uncommon experience, honestly. Yeah, yeah, knowing that it's taboo before you actually know yeah. what's what's going on. Yeah. yeah, I
0: don't think it's that uncommon, but that in and of itself is messed up. He was therefore quite disturbed by his emerging sexuality, and all the more so because he realised that it was other boys that he was sexually interested in. Despite this general atmosphere, there isn't any outright discussion about homosexuality in the town which he puts down to basically just complete cultural ignorance about it so there's never any like explicit mention against homosexuals in church or anything like that because mm-hmm. people just don't talk about these things yeah yeah, yeah. Sam himself also became very matter of fact about his sexuality very quickly he accepted that he was just into boys and that was just gonna be how it was so he might as well just get used to it and not stress about it. Wow, just okay, like, Yeah, so- alright, I'm gay.
1: Nice job, Sam. Um,
0: yeah, like I think it is a bit more complicated than that. And obviously, as he goes through a life, you know, he's born in 1909 as a gay man Yeah. in America at this time, he's socially isolated and so forth a lot. So he does have more difficult times but for the large part he's just like yep i'm gay how many men can i have sex with let's find out (laughs) and that's just kind of it he put this attitude this matter of factness down in part to finding a copy of havelock ellis's landmark studies in the psychology of sex volume two sexual inversion (laughs) under a bed in a boarding house where it had been left by a traveling salesman who had (laughs) stolen it from the restricted section of an Ohio library (laughs) yes very convenient (laughs) Can you imagine finding that as a, like, queer 14-year-old or whatever and just being like, oh, yes. (laughs) So, of this book, Sam says, not only did I discover that I was not insane or alone in a world of heteros, but I also (laughs) learned many new things to do. (laughs) I made a secret hiding place for the book under the attic stairs and read and read and read. Thus, I became an expert in the field of sex theory. By the time I finished the book, I probably knew more about sex than anyone else in the county. (laughs) probably true probably and yeah. then began to make practical applications of this vast storehouse of material <laughs> okay so his writing style is also hilarious yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. he's a fun guy yeah that, that very but good his sort of like full works are not published there's sort of bits and pieces that are published but I would okay. love to just sit down and read a like edited journal of his <laughs> I think it'd be a lot of fun I love it also when people are very funny in their private journals it's like you're telling these jokes for no one but yourself well not quite true but we'll get into that in a bit okay so yeah. okay. So I'm not sure at what age, but he started like fairly young, having those just sort of like playful sexual encounters that kids kind of have with each other sometimes. Started sort of like masturbating with another boy and things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. His first non-masturbatory sexual encounter was a blowjob that he gave to a quote unquote big guy who was a football player. That went to his school. He says it was over in two minutes. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure if this just means that this guy was like physically jacked, or if it's indicating that he was like older in the school. I uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, if they're both in high school, like how different can it be, right? Yeah, but I feel yeah. like if he's like 15 and this guy's 18, that is sort of worth. Yeah, than yeah, off. true. Yeah, and he goes on then to continue to initiate blowjobs with other boys, and it does specifically note that they tend to be older. Okay, um, okay. So I thought that was just like worth making note yeah. of. Regarding that first blowjob, he said, "So began my criminal life, then punishable by the laws of the state of Ohio at that time by about twenty years of imprisonment. I guess each time, total incarceration in Ohio between five and six thousand years." <laughs> so then he
1: added that up.
0: Yeah. Well, he's keeping records. He knows how many blowjobs he's given. <laughs> Start keeping records at this point. I'm not sure exactly when, but he does start like quite okay. young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
1: okay. Yeah. So he was really just primed to become a sex researcher. Yeah, basically. he just happened to find a copy of *Patterlock Alice* and then start recording all his sexual encounters yeah. just for fun. And giving like
0: a couple hundred blowjobs or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <hundred. laughs> yeah. What like
1: I mean. this is an origin story. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so he does specify that he's generally giving head to boys who are older than him, and as mm-hmm. you say, that can only really be like a couple years yeah. or something but it is the case and i thought it would be yeah worth mentioning that because i mm-hmm. think it would be reasonable if someone found that uncomfortable for his part sam didn't feel any sense of coercion regarding this he felt quite proud and sort of powerful at having this thing that they wanted yeah. that he could provide
1: the way you sort of worded it very much sounds like he's being quite assertive about this
0: yeah i think he sort of starts giving boys blowjobs and then word kind of gets around between some of them that like if you want a blowjob you can go to this guy yeah so he's being pursued in turn yeah but still like it, it's something that he's quite happy yeah. to do seemingly fairly indiscriminately it also meant that these sort of like older boys who, you know, were not really part of the same sort of social circle as him, treated him with like respect and sort of carefully because they didn't want to offend annoy the him or guy. offend him. Yeah, offend the blowjob <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> They didn't want to lose their chance at getting a blowjob.
1: I mean, I guess also they say offended him. They don't want him to... I was going to say that I want word to get out that he's giving them blowjobs. And I'm like, well, if he spreads that word, then he's also being like, I give guys blowjobs. So, like, everybody uses... I wonder how these boys
0: perceived their sexuality.
1: Probably straight. Yeah, I just wonder whether there's any, like,
0: conflict for them there. I mean, I'm sure for some there is, and for some there isn't. And And we don't know. And we don't know. Yeah. For what it's worth, like, as we'll sort of continue to see... Sam does mostly pursue men he understands to be straight throughout his life. And that's, like, clearly quite tied up with him wanting to pursue masculine men and him kind of understanding straightness and masculinity as being the same uh, to a degree. But, yeah, like, I think that if you had asked Sam, he would have kind of assumed that most of these were straight boys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so apart from this, like, generally pretty chill time being a gay high school student he did have one negative instance so he left a sexually suggested note for a man in the boarding house trying to initiate sex with him and his family found out his father drove him out to the countryside and yelled at him in the car for half an hour And he sort of pretended to be chastened and to have not, like, understood how serious this was and all of that. Yeah. And went along with his dad's suggestion that he go and have sex with a female sex worker in, like, the next turnover to kickstart him being straight. (sighs) And his dad, you know, wouldn't pay for it. He made Sam pay for it. And Sam went and he did that.
1: That's just... Imagine a circumstance where, like, your parent was like, "Hey, I think you should go and have sex with a sex worker." I, I just, just that would be not what imagine was
0: imagine that, frankly. <laughs> yeah, don't don't fair imagine and that. reasonable. That's just such a yeah. I mean, I've heard of this happening before to like gay men from generally sort of like earlier times. Yeah, yeah like this. Yeah. When you said that, I
1: was kind of like, "Oh yeah, that thing. thing."
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's interesting sort of the tone of this biography and of Sam's writing and so forth is that he tends to take a pretty like, well, what are you going to do approach to what are often quiet, like horrific circumstances. Yeah. Isn't? Mm. Mm. And I guess I just wanted to sort of mention things like that because I don't want to make this episode sort of too light yeah, uh, You know, like, he, he lives a fairly fine life and nothing, like, truly horrendous is going to happen to him. Like, he doesn't get, you know, killed at the end of this or anything like that. But I think it would be easy to just kind of present this as, like, Sam's fun sex romp through 20th century America and that's sort of dishonest, so... Yeah. 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 While we're mentioning this female sex worker who we know nothing more about, Sam's only other significant experience sexually with a woman was with a friend of his um in adulthood her name was Emmy Curtis and she was a high school French teacher who was 18 years older than him about her he says Emmy fell in love with me and in my peculiar way I loved her about 1943 we began to go to bed together and continued this for about six years 211 times okay (laughs) yep until Kinsey said, after our interview, why don't you stop? So that's Alfred Kinsey, uh, the sex researcher who we will come back yeah. with. Um, Kinsey does a lot of interviews with people about their sex lives for statistical purposes, mm-hmm. and Sam is one of those people.
1: Sam is an outlier and should not have been counted.
0: <laughs> I mean... <what? laughs>
1: Kinsey was like why don't you stop and he was like yeah good question why don't I if we don't do that anymore
0: yeah he goes on to say and I of course was not heterosexual I bought her a wedding ring as a common-law wife both of us having fulfilled the legal aspects by announcing it to three people we didn't want to get married it was as much her reluctance as mine for she would have lost her husband's pension as a war widow and so they stop having sex and they remain friends until she passes away and that's it
1: I feel like this kind of matches up with what you said before about his attitude to things, just being like, what are you going to do? This is how it is. He's just like, oh yeah, I'm sleeping with this woman. Oh yeah, why am I sleeping with this woman? I guess I'll stop. Like, it just seems super
0: blase. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting though as well, because he doesn't just like, eh, might as well have sex with women, like, really ever again. Yeah. yeah it's this one. he's woman. quite, like, vocally disinterested in that. Yeah. And then there's just this one woman who he has sex with over 200 times and kind of marries. Yeah. And so it's interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess the setup is she's someone he really respects He's friends with. He's like, she was in love with me. I loved her, but in a different way, essentially. I guess it's not that much of a stretch for him to have sex with her and get satisfaction out of her... Sure, Enjoyment rather than being, like, personally attracted to
0: her. It's not something where Um, I was like, oh, that's so weird or anything like that. It's just not something that you would expect to pop up in the life of this man who was otherwise so avowedly gay. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Yeah, yeah. And I was quite interested, like, this was mentioned quite early on in the biography, and I was interested to see if this sort of thing popped up and if you know how there's just so many people with someone like yeah this famous gay and then you read your biography and you're like my friend this is a bisexual
1: yeah yeah (laughs) Um, yeah yeah.
0: so with sam i I don't think it's reasonable to call him bisexual i don't think that he identified as that to any degree and he he more or less does have the like language and the ability to do that if you wanted to at this point but it was worth mentioning emmy seemed nice that's good that's good i hope they had A nice time. I guess they did. 211 times. 211 (laughs) 211 times, times, yeah. So now we're entering a subsection of my section on sex that is entitled Famous People. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) From his teen years, he had been an autograph hunter. He had written many letters to various famous people. In 1926 which is his final year of high school. For the final year of high school, he moves to Columbus from his small town. Goes yeah. to high school there. So a friend of his at a fancy hotel calls and says that they have a guest called Rudolph Guglielmo, which is the real name of the silent film actor Rudolph Valentino. Oh, okay. <laughs> staying there. And so he's like, well, I'm going there. What's the room number? <laughs> and so he knocks on the hotel room door and apparently Rudolph Valentino answers wearing only a towel. <laughs>
1: hang on was the friend like working at yeah, the hotel yeah, yeah.
0: yeah okay. I think that's the idea he's like a bellboy right. or something yeah and he's like oh can I have your autograph because we don't
1: signs... have just always answer it all like that because it's part of his like
0: persona <laughs> I don't know what Mr. <laughs> Valentino did with his life <laughs> so he signs Sam's little autograph book and then it's like you know is there anything else I'm tired and Sam's like yeah I want one more thing I want you <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, The so I mean,
0: brave boy. And I mean, what's
1: the worst thing that happens? Rudolph Valentine is like no, and closes and shuts the door to do it. Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, Ruoff is like, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> and they have sex, and um, apparently, he during this encounter obtains a little clipping of his pubic hair, which he keeps next to his bed for the rest of his life. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yep. I don't know if it's true. I mean, to some extent, like,
1: if you're a gay man in 1926 and you have sex with a famous person, then after that, you're like, I want to tell someone. I want to have, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's, um, like, a cool story you can tell nobody now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. The biographer of Justin Spring didn't really talk much about, like, speculating about if Sam told the truth or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think it's, like, reasonable to take him fairly at face value. As he said, he's writing that like, largely for himself.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but, you know, like, people lie in their own journals. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so yeah. sure. Yeah.
1: If Sam is, like, so devoted to, like, Detailed documents of all his sexual encounters. Yeah. It would almost be a little bit weird for him to lie about. Yeah, to but like make up one. Like researchers do fudge re- in all fields. Scientists yeah. fudge numbers all the time. Yeah, but I feel like there's a distinction between like fudging numbers in your research and just like throwing in a famous dude. Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. But yeah, like, I'm, you know, fairly prepared to just accept that. It doesn't really have any bearing on anything. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I Um, enjoyed it as a So I had a few other famous people who I cut for lack of time, but I will mention one other. So in the mid-1930s, who is, like, in his 20s during this time, he took a trip to Europe and he visited various literary figures and cultural institutions. He had sex with several famous people, but the one that we're going to mention uh, is Lord Alfred Douglas. Oh, okay. (laughs) Who is famous (laughs) for (laughs) having had sex with Oscar Wilde, basically. Yeah. Like, he had sex with Oscar Wilde, there was a trial about it, then he sort of didn't do much apart from be an anti-Semite and write some bad poetry, and then he died. But before that, this encounter. Okay. So he basically wrote to Alfred Douglas to meet up with him, pretty much just because he wanted to have sex with him because he'd had sex with Oscar Wilde. That's
1: what I was about to say. Was a letter, I'd like to increase my Oscar Wilde number.
0: (laughs) Yes, that is exactly it. He's like, this is the closest I'm going to get, so it's, it's you and me, Alfie, <laughs> uh, so he wrote I must honestly admit that I had no interest whatsoever in Lord Alfred Douglas as a person or as a writer but only in the fact that he and Oscar Wilde had been lovers and back in those shrouded days the name of Wilde had a magic all of its own for those of us who had to live without the benefits of liberation or exposure of our wicked lives
1: I wonder if that was like a common letter that Lord Alfred Douglas
0: got He's like oh I this again this is probably the only way that Alfred Douglas thereafter managed to pull to be honest <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. (laughs) well he's not a
1: good man no I know
0: like by this point as well he's older and so like his sort of famous good looks have gone I mean as Sam says besides I was in my 20s and Lord Alfred was by then 67 and in anyone's book that's old (laughs) in italics (laughs) Sam to go to bed with him was hardly the most attractive prospect in the world it was terrifying even repulsive but if I wanted to lick myself to Oscar Wilde there was no other way (laughs)
1: <laughs> I look how it's like upfront here yeah. about like what he wants here. Yeah <laughs> Yeah, well
0: So he goes over. Sam thinks it's pretty unlikely that he's gonna pull this off because Alfred Douglas has been married since then. Uh, he'd also become a Catholic. He didn't like Alfred Douglas, he found him pretentious and self involved and violently prejudiced and immature and he suggests like why don't we go to the pub and have a drink? And instead Alfred Douglas gets out a bottle of gin. Quote Within an hour and a half we were in bed. The church renounced Conscience vanquished, inhibitions overcome, revulsion conquered, pledges and vows and British laws all forgotten. Head down, my lips where Oscars had been, I knew that I had won. He left, they never wrote to each other again.
1: (laughs) Wow. Yep. I just thought he wrote my lips where Oscars had been. Yep. (laughs) Okay, Okay. Sam. Oh my god, okay, okay. You got what
0: you wanted. Just to talk a little bit about Sam's identity for a second. So, as we might have gathered from this point, for him being gay was largely a pretty solitary pursuit um, there was well, I like the way that
1: you make being gay sound like a hobby.
0: <laughs> I I feel like it kind of is for him, you know, like it's his like vacation, it's his life's work.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's just not that much of a real community for him to no. access at this point. Um there are a few places where queer men can meet or like when men who are looking for sex or other men can meet in early twentieth century Chicago, so there's like a few bars. He also records about 50 encounters between 1936 and 1947 at the city's Turkish baths, indicating that they're clearly a fairly reliable cruising place. But most of the time when he picks up men for sex, they're not necessarily gay or looking for sex with men. They're just sort of people who are on the street or in bars that aren't specifically gay bars. And he just sort of gets good at figuring out who he's going to be able to try his luck with. Nevertheless, this is quite a dangerous thing to be doing, and he does times get like violently beaten up sometimes after these men have sex with him but still like he's in hospital more than once okay Mm -hmm. as america enters world war ii there are increased opportunities for gay men and women to have a certain amount of freedom to explore themselves and for sam this is an especially sort of welcome change because he is intensely erotically fascinated with sailors, Uh, specifically (laughs) sailors. And luckily, near Chicago is the Great Lakes Training Station, which is the country's largest naval training station. And so as World War II is happening, thousands of men are pouring into Chicago to be trained in the Navy, and they're young, many of them away from their families for the first time, spending a night or a few days in Chicago and leave very much looking for sex. Okay. And so Sam has sex with them. So many A whole bunch. Yes. Uh, he does decide to join the Navy himself, partly due to his desire to have sex with sailors. <laughs> I what I
1: was going to say, is that, is that the motivation?
0: Mostly, yeah. Uh, okay, so And now. so when school lets out in 1943, he goes and he enlists. And he's declared physically fit by neglecting to mention his numerous food allergies.
1: Uh, <laughs>
0: and so he sits down and he eats his first meal and has a violent reaction and is immediately discharged as unfit for service so he has to have sex with sailors elsewhere oh well worth a shot Sam Mm. once Sam quits drinking he becomes more self-aware and just sort of more exploratory and like self-consciously engaged in his sex life before this he just like it was something he did when he was drunk And, Mm -hmm. you know, with all of that entails, obviously... This kind of makes it clear to me how he was
1: able to just go into bars and try and pick up straight men so much.
0: Yeah. Until he stopped drinking, he had to do drunk. And once he stops drinking, you know, he has to kind of reconsider... Not necessarily, like, where he's picking men up, because he doesn't, but I guess, yeah, just, like, his own desires and what he wants yeah sex and things like that, which sounds like quite a healthy thing for him to yeah. be doing. Yeah. Um, he also has a bunch of free time on his hands now that he's not spending it being drunk or hungover, and so he takes up classes at the Art Institute of Chicago. Okay. And he finds he has quite some natural talent as an artist, so over the next five years, the first sort of five years of his sobriety, uh, he creates murals, oil paintings, watercolors, scratchboard illustrations, wire sculptures. Photography, incised metalwork, glass etchings, small clay sculptures, painted screens, and painted lampshades. Wow. All of them are homoerotic.
1: Oh, very good. Is he just like doing an intro to sculpture course, making a super gay sculpture, and then just moving on to another art style? Was. Was. <laughs> yeah. The teachers sit around the staff and be like, oh, you've got Sam this
0: semester. <laughs> he also made uh, small tempera portrait drawings so this is where you sort of mix the paint with egg oh yeah yeah uh but instead of egg he would use semen as the binder All right. The semen in particular would be drawn from the subject of the portrait you see
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm about to you ask aren't. the stupidest question that any of you have ever heard oh, but really? can you make meringue out of semen Oh, for God's <sighs> sake. I mean, you can make it out of blood, so, like, I guess. Maybe. Oh. <laughs> like, Somebody on the internet knows the answer to this question, but it's not the
0: members of this podcast. No. <laughs> I'm sorry, please carry anyway, on. So as you can imagine, his apartment at the end of this is this, like, intense homoerotic art display. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, which is illegal at the time to yeah. to have any of these things and could have led to imprisonment. I think, to have, like, any one of them, let alone just an apartment crammed with, like...
1: Gay art.
0: Gay art. Yeah.
1: Are we talking, like, homoerotic or, like, pornographic?
0: Or I like... think there's a spectrum. Okay. She's okay. tried every kind of gay art by now. I guess he has. With his new sobriety, he also started to read extensively about his sexual desires, and and that's kind of part of his exploring, you know, well, what do I want? What am I motivated by? Line of thinking. One of the texts he read was the sexologist Alfred Kinsey's landmark study, Sexual Response in the Human Male, which was published in 1948. He published a corresponding volume on the human female in 1953, but we're not going to talk about that because women aren't really relevant to Sam's life. Except Emmy. Except Emmy, (laughs) yeah. So these were statistical overviews of American sexual behaviour. So basically, for the male one, Kinsey and his associates, I presume – interviewed 5,940 men about their sexual histories and then did statistical analysis on those well, histories. Well, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It is a lot of work, Big yeah. study. Obviously, the material that Sam is most interested in is the material about when these men have had sex with other men, mm-hmm. and it found that 37% of men had had some homosexual encounter that had led to an orgasm. 8% of men had been exclusively gay for at least three years prior to the interview. 37%
1: so cool. is such a big number actually yeah it's way higher than I would have predicted especially for the time
0: yeah,
1: yeah that's like a lot of men at least having a go at having sex with men yeah
0: yeah Um, And it was this material about men having sex with other men that caused the biggest stir when the study was published. This study and sort of other things like it meant that homosexuality could no longer be unspoken in American society as it had been in Sam's youth. Mm. It contributed to it sort of coming into mainstream consciousness, which was really good in that a lot of people who found Kinsey's work found it immediately relieved some of their shame that they'd carried for their entire lives. But at the same time, it was part of what, uh, heralded as we go into the 1950s, a greater effort to criminalize and vilify. Homosexuality. Yeah, so. yeah. Not that that's all Kinsey's fault, but that's but like, what's going on in America. Yeah. So Sam read Kinsey's work and was inspired to become more detailed in his own statistics and journals and letters and so forth. Uh, he also met Kinsey through a fellow teacher at DePaul, and he did a five-hour interview with Kinsey. I understand these interviews were generally much shorter than that, but Sam had, like, <laughs> stuff to say. <laughs> I mean, Sam had so many sexual encounters to recount, even. Yes, he walks in with his file and is like, all right, card one. And Kinsey was like, what? I guess I'll call for coffee. Yeah. So Kinsey and Sam develop a very important friendship to Sam. It's never sexual. Which one must clarify with Sam because it generally is, but it's it's never sexual between them. Um, Kinsey takes a very strong interest in Sam and his collections, and Sam becomes an unofficial contributor to Kinsey's work. So often in Sam's mind, when he's keeping his journals and things like that, it's for Kinsey.
1: Oh, okay, mm-hmm. and okay. It's,
0: it's it gives him this sort of sense that he's contributing to something bigger than himself, and he has a purpose in life. And so, like, sex really does become his vocation.
1: That's like mm-hmm. quite I don't know wholesome. I feel like it's nice for him to have in this era especially be having a lot of gay sex and being like this is a good thing that I'm doing like a good piece of work that contributes to society. Yeah. I'm
0: glad that he can think that. So Kinsey becomes essentially a sort of father figure to Sam much more supportive one than his actual father and is just never shocked or critical at all of Sam's sexuality or really of his life I guess it would
1: be very hard to shock Alfred Kinsey with anything
0: sex related probably yeah Yeah. after the other like 5,000 interviews (laughs) he would probably be like oh yeah another one something that Sam was increasingly interested in was the relationship between pleasure and pain in a sexual context and we've now entered the BBSN portion of this episode here we are which I don't think we've ever really talked about before no I
1: don't think we ever have yeah
0: it feels silly to sort of list off stuff people might do in BDSM <laughs> sex scenes, but, you know, he's into being, like, whipped or spanked or paddled or, like, whatever, chiefly that sort of thing. Okay, okay. And he's enjoyed these things sporadically since the 1930s, but there's no organised way to meet men who are interested in the same thing, so it just yeah. sort of happens occasionally.
1: Does he just, do you think, like, raise it in sexual encounters? Like, how would you feel about spanking me? And
0: sometimes they're like, no, nah, not at all. I'm, I'm not sure, but I think, to be honest, because he's the generally the like submissive person yeah. although he will go out of the way I think it's more that he happens to find men who are into this and then they will just happen to do it to him sometimes okay and he's like yeah I'm into this and he is into it which is good I guess otherwise they just happen to do it like no yeah. no my friend Um, so what that sort of hints at is that like while these encounters are essentially consensual and that he wants them and he will seek out men who seem to be sort of like domineering and things like yeah. that there's generally no mechanism in place for him to either negotiate what he wants or to stop the encounters if something happens that he doesn't want and so forth. They just kind of happen to him. And so while he's seeking them out and they're consensual in that way, once the ball's rolling, it's rolling.
1: Yeah yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So he does sometimes get more than he bargains for once he was tied to a bed and whipped, which is fine for him. But then the guy passes out and he has to work his way loose to leave.
1: Oh, He's no. left
0: tied to the bed. Was yeah. the guy just, like, drunk or something? I guess. One time when he was in Paris, he had an encounter with a sadist who went at him with a belt and a pair of scissors, Oof, okay. uh, which he was not actually really here for. He was quite shocked that this happened to him and yeah. he was recovering from it for some time. So, you know, like, it's not just kind of like, oh, he spanked me. It's he stabbed me multiple times.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, so, you know. And to a degree, this is because his sexual encounters are largely spontaneous ones. Had yeah. with men who may or may not be under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Yeah. You know, late one night on some violent Chicago back street. But it also occurs in more planned out encounters when they happen. So one time... He went to Bloomington to star in a sex research film for Kinsey of a depiction of BDSM sex between two men. A sex research
1: film? Yeah, so
0: this wasn't admitted by, like, the Kinsey Institute, I guess, until 1972, but Kinsey was making videos of people having sex for research purposes. Okay. Um, Okay. The participants in these were pulled either from, like, willing people amongst those Kinsey interviewed, or else the staff of the Institute which I have follow up questions about this is the first gay research film that Kinsey has made and Kinsey's arranged for him to have sex with a guy called Mike Mixie, I don't know how to say his last name. Um, who is a former Air Force officer who's very dominant. He's 6'3", you know, just to paint a picture of this guy. <laughs> okay.
1: And picturing him as one of those, like, join the armed forces propaganda.
0: Like, yeah, I imagine he had, had a like, real high tight haircut. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of and so Mike doesn't seem to be a good guy. All right. Um, and apparently Kinsey and his associates were aware that Mike kind of took these things too far and was potentially dangerous in these encounters. And so I think there'd be a lot to say in its own episode about the ethics of the early Kinsey Institute. Mm-hmm. Again, Not that's a whole today. other thing. Yep. Yep. So the encounter is a long and brutal one. They get Mike drunk first, which also seems like bad, yeah. Sam still doesn't drink. Like, he's a... Yeah. Recovering alcoholic. Alcoholic, yeah. So he doesn't drink. Before they get started, he tells Mike that he doesn't seem so tough, deliberately as a provocation of, like, more intense...
1: Mm. Right. Who tells Mike that? Sam. Okay. Yeah.
0: To kind of goad him on to, like, really letting him have it. Yeah. And of the encounter, I uh, will give you quite a long quote now. Okay. Sam said, I paid dearly again and again during the next two afternoons for that comment. Mike was quite a ham actor. Every time he heard Bill Dellenbach's camera start to turn, he renewed his vigour. At the end of the second afternoon... Oh, so this takes place over two afternoons. Yeah. Yeah. I was exhausted, marked and marred, all muscles weakened... During the sessions, I was vaguely conscious of people dropping in now and then to observe. Also, frankly, seems like bad research ethics, but okay. At the end of the last session, when my jaws were so tired and unhinged, I could scarcely close my mouth, let alone hold a cigarette between my lips. Mike got really angry and slapped me hard on each cheek, saying that I was the lousiest cocksucker he had ever seen. I could have killed him at that moment. And then, like, that ends they stop having sex later that evening kinsey left mike and me in separate parts of the library to do some reading and suddenly mike appeared wild fire-eyed and excited having stimulated himself with some typewritten sm stories and had his way with me on the cold cement floor of the library stacks what okay so that's that encounter so you can see what i mean about how like sam is like on board for this but also he clearly has like no control really yeah yeah and like obviously that to some degree can be part of the role play. But that but wasn't it doesn't really seem to be part of the role play. And yeah, yeah. Like, he, he can't really be like, okay, like that's enough, yeah. safe enough of this yeah. or anything like that yeah. so mixed feelings yeah. yeah also just that bit in the library it was like how did this like yeah that wasn't part of the agreement he was no. just like we're doing this again yeah. I guess kind of assuming like well I've had sex with you once so like I this have is gonna be fine. consent yeah, yeah. insofar and as Mike even thinks about consent which I'm not sure how much it's he does it's really not clear yeah. how Sam's written and like how Sam yeah. felt about that and I think Sam was like generally pretty up for these like I'm not telling him about anything where he was like yeah I Wish that completely didn't or. want to do this. Yeah. But he does have times where it's like, well, that was too much. I need to take a break from this kind of thing and stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. okay, I mean. Yeah.
1: I mean, to some extent, like Sam is very much experimenting on himself. Sure. Yeah. Which kind I mean, of, But yeah. I guess it's
0: worth noting as well is that this goes on for like decades and decades and decades. Yeah. This isn't like a period of his life where it's like, what am I into? He just kind of like lives in this Yeah. Grey zone of, like, whatever happens to me happens.
1: Yeah, but I think that's very, like, he has this sort of motivation for putting himself into circumstances Mm. like that to some extent. Yeah, I don't know. It's like because he's doing this sort of research and record-taking – To him, it's like he has something to gain from a sexual encounter that he didn't want. yeah. Mm, So he can kind of come out of it being like, well, that was too much. I know. And think more positively about it as an encounter Mm. than he might
0: otherwise. Obviously, this thing with Mike is sort of different in that he's explicitly like, I am coming here to have sex for Kinsey. Yeah. Mm. But although he is sending Kinsey his notes and stuff like that, I never really got the sense where he was like, oh, I'll try this fetish for Kinsey. Kinsey.
1: Yeah. You know, or even like, I think
0: this is a this is about him.
1: I was more thinking less specifically for Kinsey, but more surely like from what you say mm. about him like exploring himself and his desires. He'd be like, "Oh, I'll try this fetish just to see. Yeah. You know? So he's willing to come out of an encounter and be like, oh, no, no, bad, and not feel like that was terrible because he's like, I'm just trying stuff. Is that what you're
0: kind of saying? I think, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Again, this this sort of um, seeking these encounters out and sometimes them just being too much for him. Like he doesn't have any control over what it is he's exploring in them. They just happen, yeah, to yeah. And this just continuously happens over a period yeah. of decades. No, yeah. that's that's yeah. true. Yeah. So that's going on. I don't know. I don't want to either be like, oh, so he's weird. He's into weird things. But I also don't want to be like, no, like whatever you wanna do is fine because there's I think like there's yeah. like when someone's just going at you with scissors and you have no control over that, like That's not oh, Yeah. That's just not entirely yeah. healthy. No. Yeah. So yeah.
1: that's not Yeah. Healthy. I mean, I think there's a thing where it's like you can be into something and you can also be in a dangerous situation. Yeah. And those are not mutually exclusive, I guess. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You don't have I, to be like, you're weird for being into
0: this or that's
1: unhealthy mm-hmm. to be into um, in order to acknowledge the danger.
0: Yeah. Mm. As time goes on, his, his, sex life or his sexual interests become more and more centred around like increasingly extreme forms of violence Mm. okay and so he continues to have sex with men regularly who seem to be just like genuinely abusive um you know so he notes that he's regularly hooking up with a man who's like a violent alcoholic and another one just got out of prison and while he was in prison he murdered someone in there and stuff like that um he starts having regular sex with a former nazi stormtrooper oh okay um and he's Specifically interested in him because of his past, because he's interested in brutalizing authority figures, and so forth. So while he's sometimes in situations with these men that are genuinely dangerous, like that is the appeal for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, As is fairly self-evident, I guess, his interests and also the fiction that he writes during this time is somewhat linked with the growing leather movement. So in the decades after World War II, this evolves into a whole social movement that has like gathering places and events and things like that. And you would think that Sam would be pleased about that, but he is not. He completely avoids these gatherings and he's very skeptical of any like sort of gay institutions or formalized social groups so to sam bdsm is about finding rough and dangerous sex with working or criminal class straight men
1: there's some
0: therefore, like weird classism in there there is absolutely and therefore just to finish my sentence it's not something that can be institutionalized into like mm. i do this in an organized way at a club with another man who yeah. has the kinks um yeah it, it is worth mentioning that he obviously does have some kind of like weird relationships with class in his life yeah he he doesn't come from a particularly upper class background but his identity as a sort of academic and a professor even after he leaves that is very important to him. And like I think there yeah. like, is a juxtaposition between him and these like rough working class men that he yeah. sexually idealises.
1: I mean, and that's not like that's sort of unique to Sam or no, unusual to know. Sam. No. <laughs> like rough sex with working class yeah. men is like pretty common erotica content.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, um but yeah, like it is worth sort of explicitly noting it, I guess.
1: Especially for Sam, I feel like he's making this kind of link between between violence and mm. class
0: yeah well and also he's like very highly values masculinity and i could see like people sort of do have this picture of a working class man as being like more sort of raw masculinity yeah yeah um, so for the sex that sam has with these men there there just sort of isn't any script there can't be and so the growing sort of rituals and things like particular modes of dress amongst leather men is something that he thinks of as deeply inauthentic and will not have a bar of. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the sort of, like, dangerous situations he gets into where sometimes he just kind of gets stabbed a bit are sort of, like, a feature as much as a bug to him.
1: Yeah, I was going to wonder earlier about the history of those kind of, like, institutionalised safeguards that you have in, like, BDSM mm. community, like sort of safe words and that kind of thing, mm. that like formalised consent stuff, and like when and whether Sam would encounter those tools, but he's apparently he's encountered them and he's like no, that would ruin it for me.
0: Yeah. His disinterest in engaging with these communities is also indicative of something I'm not sure if we've touched on yet, but his sort of ambivalence towards other gay men in I general. guess
1: we did talk about this and that he's mostly looking for straight, yeah.
0: in quotes, um, men.
1: So he- and- Yeah, you did sort of talk about his idea of straight men as more
0: masculine, like more men. Um, Um, So some of his journal entries detail sort of like quite intense loathing he has to other gay men that he sees. mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of this seems to be aimed chiefly at their perceived effeminacy. So does
1: he perceive himself as being like a masculine man
0: or? I don't really have any like direct quotes I can think of to point to, but my sort of sense of it is that like, yes, he does. But masculine in a different way than, again, these, like, rough working class oh, yeah. men are. Yeah, okay. So Sam called the gay leather crowd pussies in boots. This
1: is, like, a weird and huge question, but... Sure. <laughs> how does he... Does he just not think about women at all?
0: Uh, I...
1: I no, I don't think so. All right. Like, I thinking was thinking say- about,
0: like... I'm Lesbian thinking about so no, I'm,
1: I'm more just thinking about misogyny like if he's so hard on what he perceives mm. as like effeminacy or lack of masculinity mm. how does mm. he feel about those things when they in women
0: I have no idea yeah. Yeah. Uh, he obviously does have some sort of female friends. I've mentioned Emmy. Yeah. And we've mentioned Gertrude Stein. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, like, I, I really can't think of, like, many mentions of women at all. I He's yeah. just sort of one of those gay men who lives in a world where women are just sort of peripheral and
1: yeah, irrelevant,
0: irrelevant, I think. And especially, like, you know, he goes into, um, like, tattooing and very few women are being tattooed at that time, mm. so that's largely a male sphere as well. And yeah. just, mm. like... Then he goes into writing gay porn for presumably gay male audiences. Yeah. He's just like, I don't know. Okay. I mean, he's like a man in the, you know, 20th century, born in 1909. So I presume he was like somewhat of a misogynist, but. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you anything really. Yeah, no, that's okay. That's okay. But yeah, so that sort of like pussies and boots comments sort of Mm. encapsulates the lack of authenticity he feels in the clothing that these men wear that they mm. might wear all of the leather and the boots and stuff like that but like fundamentally they're not really able of walking the walk
1: Mm-mm. yeah yeah uh, it is
0: a point of view that he has to just continue to talk about like inappropriate sexual encounters that Sam has okay it would have been remiss of me to not address the fact that he's generally interested in having sex with younger men and this is poorly defined a lot of the time so it seems to be sort of late teens early 20s but what the breakdown is over that i do not know Mm -hmm. um there are times where like specific people he's sleeping with who were teenagers are mentioned but i don't know if they are mentioned for being like rare examples that just happen to be a bit younger than normal or if like this is a constant part of his sex life during 1950 he develops a powerful infatuation with a student of his when he was still teaching at paul and they arranged that Sam is going to go down on the student in exchange for better grades. Wow. Yeah, okay. so that is just, that's like, just there's a no discussion to be had about what's up with that. That's just uh, Unethical. gross abuse of power. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he uh, also, as I mentioned, had several, like, ongoing sexual relationships with teenagers. Yeah. So one of them was a teenage sex worker called Johnny Reyes, and that went on for the better part of a decade, but it started when Johnny was 17. Now, apparently Sam was shocked to learn of this and then resolved to break up with... The relationship, feeling very guilty about it, but he just kind of couldn't bring himself to do it, and mm-hmm. so he didn't. And so he continued to have sex with this teenage boy okay so i don't know really what to say about this obviously we can acknowledge that it's inappropriate and abuse yeah. of power and things like that but that kind of feels like insufficient in some ways to spend five minutes being like oh so that sucks anyway back to fun egg paintings or whatever yeah um, mm. but i don't really know what else to say i know that like occasionally people take issue with us even talking about this kind of thing that like this sort of thing should immediately disqualify people from even being on this podcast. And I don't
1: agree I don't with that. agree with that. Also Especially in- I think because like in the sort of history of male homosexuality, mm. that like age difference, that young boy thing is so. Yeah. And I mean prevalent. that's the
0: sort of thing where I think like the other thing we can do apart from just being like, this happened, it was bad, let's move on, is kind of try and analyse why it happened. And then mm. you get into this sort of field of analysing like why specifically gay men in this case might want to have sex with teenagers and that is something that people are quite cautious about doing because Mm. of ongoing stereotypes about gay men being pedophiles that are obviously complete nonsense generally speaking yeah so i don't know what we should do here but i feel like we should do something i think it's it's sort of worth noting that in my experience when people write about gay men or just like men who have sex with men throughout history this kind of thing is dealt with just very matter-of-factly and i guess i'm finding that notable not so much when we talk about ancient greece or whatever yeah because that is absolutely like not any real significance to us today. Yeah, like, I so know that we're quite influenced by the ancient Greeks and Romans, but, like, it's not our culture in any real way. Yeah, um, But more so talking about, say, like, 20th century figures, or even, mm. like, 19th century figures, there's just this matter-of-factness of, like, yep, and this person was having sex with a teenager. And I just find that quite sort of strange. And mm. I, I, I don't know, like, if that's done because those particular people writing those sorts of things don't find that to be shocking or a problem which is possible, or if it's that, like, you know, they think it's best to have sort of scholarly detachment and just be like, this occurred. Mm. I mean... I I don't know, but, like, it does kind of happen and it makes me sort of feel like, or I definitely have felt at times in the past that, like, I don't know, it comes across as kind of, like, naive or insufficient to be like, hang on a second, it's not okay for an adult man to have sex with a 16-year-old. It's like, yeah, like, we know. But then at the same time, like, we don't know, do we? Because people keep, like making call me by your name movies i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah i don't i agree with you i don't know what more we can say Mm. there except that i feel like to some extent people when they write about these things maintain this like scholarly detachment because they're unwilling to make a call on whether or not this was more
0: acceptable 80 years ago or Mm.
1: yeah Yeah. i think it
0: is also interesting that like we both sort of just said then Irene and I don't know you didn't protest (laughs) us that like it's appropriate that we've done this episode and Mm. episodes on other men who have done similar things in fairly recent times but like I was reading for example through this dictionary or like encyclopedia of like Gay people once yeah. and sort of making notes of ones and I was kind of like, well, hang on, the only relationships you've mentioned this person having are with teenagers, and looking it up and finding that like one of the people in question had literally only really had sex with fourteen to fifteen year old boys, and I was like, no, that's not yeah, no, no, like- we're not doing that, we're not talking about that person, and it's kind of like,
1: but if they'd done that and also had sex with one man their yeah. age, is it like also oh, yeah, this so is like fine now? that
0: puts us kind of in the setting of kind of being like, well, how much.
1: How much sex and with you get boys away is with too before
0: much. We, yeah, and obviously that's not, like, the answer is none. Like, you shouldn't be having Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, but at some much? point, obviously, that person is just a pedophile. Yeah. Yeah. And at some point, like, they're a gay man who did some unethical stuff.
1: I also, like, keep thinking of the example of Oscar Wilde yeah. as, like, somebody who also had... Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. And, like, in that case, it's like, if you're a queer history podcast, you're going to talk about Oscar Wilde. Mm. And then as well as the, like, how much sex is with... Young boys is too much. It's like, how famous do you get to be? Yeah, exactly. How we, famous before do you get you're to too be. important to kind of excise yeah. how from fam- the record? I mean, yeah. And I also feel like, like having sex with younger people is not. Like, it's not clear cut. There's not always a sort of obvious deadline to turn this is 18. Too far. It's fine. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Like, legally, there's a line, but in reality, if somebody's 19 and somebody's 50, yeah. is that so different to somebody if, being yeah. 17 and somebody being 15? And 50? we mean yeah. that
0: in that it's still inappropriate to yeah. be clear. Yeah. Not like, well, then it's fine if they're 17 and fine if they're 15. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Like, although
1: legally, the line might be at 18 yeah. or whatever. Ethically, yeah, age is when and where you are. That line is so arbitrary. Yeah, ethically, it's blurry and. Yeah, it continues to be inappropriate yeah yeah
0: and like especially as Sam gets older and continues to want to have sex with like 20 year olds yeah Yeah. like when he's 30 that's like okay when he's 40 and when he's 50 and when he's 60 it's like it's still going on I guess like a 24 year old is kind of an adult in this setting but like yeah and (laughs)
1: Mm. then we get the like thing when Sam was much younger like he was in his 20s and he decided he wanted to have sex, sex with, with
0: Alfred Douglas yeah, yeah
1: who was 67 Yeah, and presumably if we'd looked at that from the other perspective we would have been like Alfred what are you doing yeah we would have been like kind of is Alfred taking advantage of the oh I slept with Oscar Wilde card to like have an inappropriate relationship with a young man whereas from Sam's perspective it sounds like like Sam Sam's was, like
0: I won that. Sam's like I'm gonna show up and get this guy drunk. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah it's very complicated it is complicated um, like what's not complicated is that him having this sex to oh, be yeah. clear is not okay
1: yeah, uh, yeah
0: Sam yeah. himself feels guilty about it he knows it's not okay he yeah. does it anyway yeah uh, but I just don't want us to be like well it's complicated is it wrong that he had sex in this like I didn't want it to come oh, across yeah. Yeah. that that's what we were I
1: mean yeah. that's my point it's complicated how should we as yeah. historians yes. deal with the fact that these yeah. men are having this unethical yeah. sex because it's not as if
0: this is rare either yeah no. so like that was pretty incoherent and I'm sure after we it would be like still pretty coherent but you know yeah. hopefully yeah. we can kind of build on this a bit as this unfortunately comes up again at some point point. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and feel like we have a way of dealing with this because I really don't know I,
1: right now I feel like we just don't and I don't even uh, mean like we at this table don't I mean just we as historians no. don't know how to deal with this yeah in conclusion though I just sort of want to say that I feel generally fairly strongly that taking an approach that's like we don't talk about Mm. unethical things that happened in history is just bizarre and I feel like it's weird to apply that to yeah. pedophilia when we don't apply it to anything else yeah and I don't like the idea that someone becomes unmentionable because they've done something unethical mm.
0: yeah. um, I, think, I think that is the sort of thing as well though, where I feel like a lot of people who like comment on posts make and stuff like that sort of view this as we're talking about people we're fans of and that's what this is where we don't really come oh yeah through, absolutely yeah, not like that. yeah and i think we are kind of responsible for that impression to some degree because like we deliberately do take quite a casual tone and we're like oh let's hear about this person's dog and stuff like that yeah and that's why i feel like you know having an episode largely neutral to positive about someone and then taking five minutes to be like obviously they shouldn't have had sex with that teenager is not good enough.
1: Yeah. yeah, I feel like there is a thing I guess more in queer history where a lot of people seeking out queer history are seeking here's someone like me in history that shows that I can have a good yeah. life and that I can do all these things and so people view queer history and queer historians as doing that work of finding good role models for queer sure, people to yeah. show that how queer people can exist. And I think it's yeah. fair
0: like it's another thing that I think sort of historical institutions protest against a bit but i think it's fine to take queer history more personally than like economic history yeah
1: you know, or something yeah like that yeah
0: like, you're just gonna have to accept that that's what this is yeah and yeah. i think
1: that you know for many aspects many yeah. types of social history that's yeah. true like i think a lot of people would say women's history would be the same thing or some yeah like various racial yeah. racialized histories yeah would be the same thing yeah yeah but yeah it doesn't mean that we can I think it would be remiss of us to yes. only talk about people that we found pure. Mm.
0: <laughs> yeah. But having said that, like, obviously there is a line. Yeah. And yeah. Kind of constantly deciding when that is. You know, there is a point at which it's like, that's not a productive use of our time.
1: Yeah. I think that's yeah. the thing. But like, there's no way for us to kind of lay down a hard and fast mm. principle now being like, you know, we will talk about people if they've had... Oh God, minimum this time. number of you know there's and no, the age gap is minimum. Yeah. there's no yeah, way right. for us to yet. Yeah, like mm. as we established, that just sounds like such nonsense when yeah. we put it yeah. out like mm. that. There's no way for us to like make a set rule about that. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: But. but yeah, let's move on from that. Let's talk about tattooing. <laughs> so in early 1948, Sam got his first tattoo, which was a little anchor on his shoulder because Sam has a giant navy fetish. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Like a lot of people, once he had one, he needed more. You know, he had the bug. To the extent that he just kind of caved and tattooed himself a few times. Sam is just very, like... Ready to go. Yeah, Yeah. at all times. Yes. One time when he tattooed himself, he put a series of little, like, notches on his hand and forearm, indicating five, six, seven, eight inches, so he could (laughs) fact-check when men tell him how big their penises are.
1: (laughs) That's so funny. Just imagine him, like, he's in a sexual encounter just being like, I have a ruler on
0: my arm. Yeah. Well, he was like, everyone tells me they've got ten inches. Let's see. And this guy would be like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) He learned that the Saturday between paydays found lines of sailors waiting to get tattooed, and this image seized Sam deeply and stuck with him.
1: The reason he became a tattooist is actually because of his sailor fetish?
0: Somewhat, yes. (laughs) Somewhat, yes. So just kind of the, the image of sailors waiting in line has been a really powerful erotic fixation for him for quite a while so he starts to research more about tattooing he enrolls in a correspondence course
1: I don't think you can learn to tattoo without just tattooing.
0: Yeah, that concerned me. Um. Anyway, so he like he also found that this wasn't something that you could book mm-hmm. learn, and he learned in person from Amund Dietzel, who was like one of the old tattoo masters around mm-hmm. at that time. And then in 1954, he started to tattoo out of an amusement arcade in downtown Chicago under the pseudonym Phil Sparrow. Phil is back. <laughs> Phil is back. So he'd been dreaming of this for a while. He wrote to a friend in December of 1953 that his dream was to, quote, hire me to a seaport town rent a shack and hang out a shingle and spend my golden twilight years putting lovely designs on strong young brown arms and shoulders and thighs and buttocks and fally if the request (laughs) arises so he's just he's just exactly what you think he is yeah from this point yeah He does tattoo more than one penis. Yikes. Yeah, yikes, I agree. Yeah, Yeah, okay. sounds very painful. It does. So he discovered that he was quite good at running a shop. He had a knack for dealing with the various sort of like rough personalities that came in to get tattoos. So like at this time, there's lots of sailors and things like that, but there's also just a lot of like criminals.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Mm -hmm. so
0: forth. He also found that he was able to successfully proposition people he tattooed like with surprising frequency mm-hmm. and he felt really sort of intimately connected to people he tattooed because it is like quite an intimate thing to yeah talk to someone. yeah later in life as his sex drive started to wane a bit he would find like just having that intimacy of tattooing them and talking to them while he was doing that and then sort of seeing them off like enough mm-hmm. not to like climax to be clear, but just like just a satisfying gratifying, yeah yeah Experience in and of itself so he was a teacher for like 20 years yeah and then some combination of all of the reasons why he might get fired caused him to be fired and he started tattooing full time and despite the fact that as we talked about he didn't really like teaching all that much mm-hmm. he had to take amphetamines mm-hmm. to get through it at the mm-hmm. end he felt deeply mixed about losing it. In part I think due to sort of the classism issues that we raised earlier. He was terrified about whether he could make a living as a tattoo artist full time. Mm. But also he really felt the loss of face that losing his teaching job was to him. Yeah. It was a really important part of his identity to be a writer and an academic. And for more than 20 years, he sort of had that as a stable part of his life. Mm. And so to be, quote unquote, like, just a tattoo artist Mm. in a time where this is really stigmatized made him doubt his self-worth quite a bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah. And especially, I guess, like, he didn't leave by choice. It's not like he was like, oh, I'm bored Mm. of this. I'm going to go and try you know, try and be a tattoo artist full-time or something. Yeah. He was, like, rejected from it.
0: Yeah. Kinsey was very supportive of this new stage of Sam's life. He said that he valued Sam's input just as much as a tattooist as he had as an academic and also suggested that he start trying to see what he could uncover about the motivations for people getting tattoos. Mm. Of the people that Kinsey had interviewed who had tattoos, none of them could ever tell him why they'd gotten the tattoos. Mm. And so Sam started to kind of, like, think about that, and he made a 1,000-page tattoo journal over six years with observations and statistics drawn from just informally chatting with his people. He's just so thorough all the time. He is so thorough all the time, yeah. So I think that's really important as well, that sort of Kinsey gives him some kind of, like, intellectual purpose
1: to this phase
0: of his life. Mm -hmm. In 1963, he closed his tattoo parlor uh, because Illinois had recently outlawed tattooing anyone under 21, and a lot of his clients were under 21. Yep. So he moves to San Francisco um, and he sets up a tattoo shop front in Oakland, which is near the naval bases and is also luckily near uh, the headquarters of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Gang. Oh, okay. So obviously they are quite tattooed gentlemen. Yes. Yep. They are one of those things. And the shop in general is in like quite a heavy crime area. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of police brutality. There's a lot of gang activity. Uh, And so it's just a pretty rough, tense area he's in, but he makes a living there. In early 1966, Don Ed Hardy walks into the tattoo parlor at the time he's a young printmaker. He'd heard of Phil Sparrow through his own correspondence course in tattooing, which Sam had (laughs) contributed to. (laughs) It's just a thing that people have. Yep, it was just a thing that people did. Sam's tattoo parlor was a big influence on Ed Hardy. Um, That's so wild. I know! (laughs) Why is Ed Hardy here! He's here! It's quite different than most other tattoo parlors, which I think are just kind of like filthy messes at yeah. the time, yeah. frankly. So he has designs hung up and different styles on the walls, and he plays classical music. Aww. Um, he also doesn't tattoo off in a back room; he tattoos in the oh, okay. store. Mm-hmm. So Sam shows Ed a recent book that was published on Japanese tattooing, and he talked very highly of Japanese tattooing as yeah. like people tend to do, mm-hmm. um, and sort of described them as like the only tattoo movement that was art in and of itself that existed at the time. Mm. Ed was floored at these tattoos. He'd never seen anything like it and he knew that this was the kind of art he wanted to pursue and he asks Sam to teach him how to tattoo and Sam discourages it. He views tattooing as a dying art that has no opportunity oh. to break into the mainstream and well. won't have long-term viability for Ed's career, Sorry, which Sam. is not how that has been. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, wrong guess there, Sam. Wrong guess, yeah. But he did give him pointers and, like, basic skills and techniques and so forth. Um, Ed did his first tattoo on his own leg in early 1967. His first tattoo that he tattooed, to be clear. He already had tattoos. Yeah, yeah. And so his apprenticeship with Sam wasn't particularly long or formal, but it did instill him with well-developed techniques, and he went on and he became Ed Hardy. Yeah. Throughout
1: 1966
0: and 1967, Sam was visited by various Hells Angels, including the leader, Ralph Sunny barger he was justifiably terrified of them they were all extremely violent and often egged on by using pcp and other drugs yep but they became the mainstay of his business and he kind of ostensibly became friends with them
1: but he was also like like they
0: talked about him as a friend but like you know yeah
1: yeah Yeah.
0: he was put off when he realized that a lot of the tattoos he was doing were testaments to their participation Uh, in various acts of murder or violence or rape so from 67 to 71 he became their official tattoo artist and they were very particular about the accuracy of various, like, emblems and symbols mm-hmm. and so forth that they had. So they wanted, like, a good guy. And so Sam was it. Yeah. He lists some common designs that these gangs would be tattooed with in his memoirs, but he doesn't divulge a lot of them because they're secrets and he yeah. probably would have been killed, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So he just knew those things. And he recalls having, like, a lot of very tense encounters with them once he was called in the middle of the night and uh, Sonny told him he had to come to the tattoo parlor and he was like I mean okay like I mean no (laughs) and so he shows up and he's being asked to black out a gang tattoo that a guy has who is not a member of the gang and then they took that guy off somewhere and like presumably murdered him yeah yeah. Yeah. so that sort of thing goes on Yeah, and that coupled with the fact that it's just like quite a violent area eventually that Sam is like alright that's enough I'm closing up and he retires from being a tattoo artist so once he's retired he turns to writing and publishes the Phil books as we've discussed but eventually he stops writing as well he sort of feels like he's said what he has to say and he's not interested in just churning more out for no reason. Mm -hmm.
1: I like the way he's just been like I feel like I've written enough gay erotica and I'm satisfied now (laughs) (laughs) like that's not how I imagine writing gay erotica
0: going. Once He stops, though. He's retired, and he doesn't really have any immediate social circle, Uh, so he becomes mm -hmm. increasingly socially isolated and dependent on drugs. Um, His health worsens, and on December 31st, 1993, he dies of heart failure due to chronic pulmonary emphysema. After he died, his house is left crammed full of all of these papers and things, full Mm -hmm. of gay sex things. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know, all kinds of journals and letters and and records and all of that. Sam, as he, near the end of his life, was unsure he would be interested in his papers when he died, so he just sort of kept them in his house. The man who had been assigned his executor had passed away from AIDS, Oh, okay. recently when he died and local archives and libraries that were interested in gay related collections were experiencing a huge flood of donations mm. because so many people were passing away from the AIDS crisis and so there was nowhere for his papers to go. His executor ended up being a man called Michael Williams, who luckily was a trained librarian with oh. a strong interest in gay culture. Uh, and he took a sabbatical from his job and spent seven months of full-time work clearing out Sam's papers from his bungalow. Well, So they didn't really have any financial value and he was free to essentially do whatever he wanted with them. And so he took these 80 boxes of material and put them in his attic for like a decade. No one came looking for them. Some of them had been donated to Boston University, and before Spring wrote his biography, no one had ever requested them.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Okay, um, yep.
0: He'd also contributed a lot of information to the Kinsey Institute, but the Kinsey Institute does not allow people's personal sexual histories to be accessed by anyone, mm-hmm. and so a lot of that material was counted as part of that, and it's just not available. Yeah. A month before Spring got in touch with the Institute, they had generated a finding aid for the portions of Sam's papers that they considered to be independent of his confidential sexual history Mm -hmm. um, and opening them to qualified researchers. So there are some stuff, but to read these papers, you have to apply and have like a reason that they accept to see them. And once accepted, you have to go to Indiana so yeah. they're quite inaccessible, really. So the ability to research Sam's life has therefore been basically just to Sam's hoarding of much of his own papers and of William's decision to keep them in his attic for mm. a decade, despite having no obligation to do that. Yeah, And I guess, yeah, like, as we've touched on here, this is quite an unusual collection for someone to have created. Sam is very open about his sexuality, as you may have gathered yeah. in his papers, and this is very different from most of his contemporaries, or well, contemporary gay men, I should. Mm, say yeah so their private writings are often very vague or deliberately concealing of relationships they've had or sexual encounters they've had and things like that and so sam is just such a rare treasure mm. in our ability to learn something about 20th century american gay life that is often concealed from us and it's really frankly the opposite problem of what we've had in most episodes where we just don't know where information comes from people have deliberately destroyed things and so yeah. forth it's all just wrapped up in mark williams attic like so, hear it all is yeah Um, And I mean, that's really why we've done the episode, because this kind of thing is so rare. Mm. I think it's Mm. nice that Sam, like, despite the fact that we can have quite a clickbaity, like, tagline of, you know, English professor turned... Yeah. ...tattooing sex renegade, (laughs) um, he really is just kind of, like, an ordinary person who... Mm. does fairly yeah. conceivable things with his life. It's yeah. just yeah. that we happen to have all this material about it.
1: I think you can also, because we have all this material, like you get such a good idea of like what he was like as a person. Yeah.
0: Which is nice. And I thought that was nice. I don't know. It made me think about how like really everyone has mm. an interesting life. We just don't yeah. have yeah. enough knowledge about most people. It's just some people write it down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So hmm. I enjoyed
0: that for just this reason, the sort of idea that this wasn't any like great person. It was just like, A person like all people are.
1: Yeah. But we just got to know
0: them intimately Hmm. in this case. So that was nice. That's good. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. My name is Eli. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also listen to more of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you found this. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts especially, but wherever, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a review. Uh, It really helps us to find... A wider audience. If you would like to support us financially, you can donate to us on Patreon or buy something from our Redbubble store. Or if you would like to support us entirely for free, you can just tell your friends about the podcast. I think we find a lot of listeners through. The
1: we podcast. do. Yeah. I also yeah. just love it when we get emails or something like I tell all my friends about your podcast. I yeah. tell everyone I meet, they have to listen to this. And I'm like, yes, thank yes. you. That's
0: so good. Yes. Yeah. We love you individually. We're recording somewhere new today. So this is going to sound a little bit different for those of you who are astute. But we respectfully acknowledge the Boon and Wurrung, and we pay our respect to their elders, both past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast was recorded. We'll be back on April 1st when Irene will be telling us about Shah Hussain, the 16th century Punjabi poet. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you then.